thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, as believers, one of the things that we regularly do is remember Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross uh, through taking communion. And, you know, we should do this regularly because Jesus tells us to, but we should also do this properly. Uh, the, the Corinthian church, they regularly partook of communion, but what Paul's going to reveal to us here in the passage that we're going to look at this morning is they weren't doing it properly. That, that was one of their problems, and uh, they were really missing the whole point of, of what they were meant to be remembering and their actions as they uh, came towards uh, communion was one of selfishness. And so in these verses this morning, we're going to look at three things that the Corinthians were doing improperly, uh, which brought consequences to them. Uh, and then we're going to look at three things that Paul shares with us, the things that they have should have done, which would have been uh, proper ways to take communion. And so um, this is going to be something that's very relevant for us because, you know, every single month we partake of communion together. And so, you know, we're going to start with looking at the negative side of things that we want to avoid, things that we don't want to be guilty of as we come to communion. But we also want to make sure that we understand how we should be approaching it, how we should be doing it uh, so that we're doing it in a proper way. And so Paul's going to start with focusing on the improper things that the Corinthian church was was doing uh, as they came together as believers ultimately to uh, partake of communion. And so here's a, a warning for us of things that we shouldn't do. Starting in verse 17, it says this, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Something important to understand about the early church, and it's something that exists all the way to this day, is they had what they called agape feasts, agape speaking of love, and so they had these love feasts, and you know, today in the church world we call them potlucks, we get together, we fellowship, I think love feast is a much better term than than potluck, but it's the same concept, you'd have people come to someone's home, and they'd all come together for fellowship, for food, and usually within the early church, they would finish that time with a time of communion, a time of remembering Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for them. Well, as the believers there in Corinth have come together for love feasts, for fellowship, for you know demonstrating love, for eating a meal together, for taking communion, Paul brings out the reality that they're not doing this in a proper way. And so he says to them in verse 17, Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. 
Now, if you remember at the beginning of this chapter, Paul does praise them. He starts off with two praises for them about how they came together as a church and, and things that were good. And now that he has to instruct them on partaking of communion together, he says, I'm not praising you in this because you're supposed to be coming together for the better, but you're really not. You're coming together for the worse. When the Corinthian believers came together in love feasts and fellowship and, and loving one another, eating with one another, taking communion with one another, that gathering was ultimately for the worse because they weren't doing it properly. You know, this is such a sad thing. This time together was meant to be a time of encouragement, a time of sharing with one another, a time of serving one another, a time of loving one another, ultimately a time to remember the ultimate love of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us. And when you do that, you're better off. When that is the what's happening in that time, you're better off because you've had that time with other believers. Love has been demonstrated. Service has been demonstrated. Remembering Christ has happened. And so when that takes place, yes, you come together and you leave better off than when you came. But those weren't the things taking place when the Corinthians were getting together. There was a lot of selfishness. There was a lot of sinfulness. There was a lot of divisiveness. And so Paul says, when you come together, it wasn't for the better, but for the worse. They were worse off after coming together because of the ungodly things that were happening. You know, this is such a sad statement of any group of believers that gets together that someone would say, you know what, you are worse off for coming together as believers because it defeats the whole purpose. I mean, the purpose of getting together as believers is to worship God, is to edify, to build one another up, to love each other. I mean, everything and we when we come together is designed to be something that is a blessing, designed to be something that would be better off for us. We, we come because we leave like, oh, I'm so refreshed. I'm so built up. I'm so encouraged. I feel so loved. I mean, that's the purpose of time together as believers. It's not so you leave more discouraged than when you came, more beat up than when you came, more hurt than when you came. And that's the reality of what was transpiring here. They were meant to be better off, but yet they were worse off when they left. You know, and this is a sad testimony uh, for them. And, And unfortunately, this is something that we see in churches today as well, where people will come and they'll leave worse off than when they came. They come discouraged and they leave even more discouraged. They come hurt and they leave even more hurt. They come, you know, wanting and needing love and all they get is rejection. And, you know, it's such a a sad testimony that that would transpire in a place where that's not what it's meant to be at all. You know, you should come and be loved and be encouraged and be built up. And that was the purpose of these love feasts. But unfortunately, That wasn't what was transpiring. And so Paul's going to now reveal, hey, you're worse off, and there's three reasons why you're worse off. There's three problems that are existing, three things you are doing improperly as you get together, and this is why it's for the worse, not for the better. The first improper thing they were doing is in verses 18 and 19. He says, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. The first improper thing that was causing problems when the Corinthian believers got together was the fact that there were divisions and factions among them. This Greek word translated factions means dissensions arising from diversity of opinions, aims, a sect, 
So when the Corinthian believers got together, they were divided. And one of the things that divided them was this dissension, this, oh, we differ from you here. We're, we're a different class. We're rich, you're poor. We're a different race. And uh, there was these dissensions because of the, the differences within the body of Christ. And it was bringing division. And you have these different cliques and these different groups that were getting together. Now, as the Corinthians gathered for fellowship for food for love it was meant to bring them closer together in their relationship with god closer together in their relationship with each other but paul says that's not what happened at all the opposite happened instead of being brought closer which is what it should have done you've been divided and you have these different groups that are dividing from other groups and the whole purpose of this time is for unity and for being brought closer together and yet what we're seeing is divisiveness and division So the first problem there in Corinth, when they gather together, they have these divisions, they have these factions among them. And I think this is a real warning for any church, for us as a fellowship, for any other church, because something the enemy loves to do is cause division. And he's really good at it. He wants to divide people. He wants to divide churches. He wants to divide marriages. He wants to divide families. I mean, that is his ultimate desire. He loves that. He wants to divide you from Jesus as much as possible, you from other believers as much as possible. And so we have to be on guard because that is something that he's always seeking to do. And if you are open to him using you in that, he will. And that means, you know, you're a little bit bitter against someone. He's going to use that. You know, you got a problem with the person there he's going to use that something happened in your life that you didn't like he's going to use that to try to make a division between you and God he's going to use everything he can to bring division and he was being very successful in that there in the church in Corinth and so we need to be on guard against that because that's the opposite of what the church should be we should not be divided we should be unified So the first improper thing that was causing problems when the Corinthian believers got together was this division, this faction. The second improper thing that was taking place we see in verses 20 through 22, which say this. Therefore, when you come together in one place, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. The second improper thing that was causing problems there in Corinth as they got together, there was selfishness and insensitivity among them. Sharing a meal in that culture was a little different than ours, and at least the, the perception of that. There was this intimacy and oneness, because how they would eat is they would take bread, and they would dip it into different sauces, and then you would take it, and you would eat, and you would dip, and you would drink out of similar cups and pass it around. And ultimately, literally, your saliva would be mixing within things, and you would be you know one in that regard. And so there was this real sense of, of oneness when you would eat with one another, and because of that... They were very cautious in that culture as to who they would eat with because they didn't want to become one, which is any old person. And so you see a lot of Jews, they wouldn't eat with Gentiles. They had issues with Gentiles. We're not going to eat with you. We're not going to become one with you. Masters wouldn't eat with their slaves. We're above you. I mean, we're masters. You're slaves. We don't want you to be one with us. Rich people, poor people, men oftentimes wouldn't eat with women. 
But you know what? This is what made the love feast in the early church such an amazing testimony when it was done right to the world. Because the world has so much division and has so much class barrier. I mean, just look at our culture today. And so when you would all come together, rich and poor, you know, different races, different ethnicities, different social status, and you come together as equals and eat together as equals and fellowship together as equals, that was such a, a mind-boggling thing for the world looking on because it didn't exist in that culture. It doesn't really exist in our culture because as believers, we believe because the Bible teaches us that in Christ Jesus, we all are one. We are all equals. Galatians 3, 28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ. In Jesus, he brings a oneness. All these dividing barriers that were so common in that culture and in our culture today, Jesus breaks them down and says, you know what? No, you are equal because I have died equally for all of you. You all equally come to me the same way. You're all lost sinners and you all need salvation from me. And now as you accept me, you all become one. You all become connected and equal together. So the love feast was meant to be this time of fellowship and love and connection and equality. And what a wonderful testimony that would be. But unfortunately, that was not the case with these Corinthian believers. And so Paul tells us in verse 21, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Now, why would someone be hungry at a love feast? You would think, well, if it's a love feast, you know, everyone's going to get full. But there was a problem that was existing there, and Paul brings up their problem. There were people, I mean, kind of like when we have our little potlucks, you've got the front of the line and the end of the line. And the people who were going first, they're piling on the food and stuff in their faces so that the people at the end of the line come to get food, and all the food is now gone. But there was a specific group doing this, and Paul ultimately says, each one takes his own supper ahead of others and one is hungry. But in that culture, the upper class would always eat before the lower class. Uh, and, you know, so this was something that was a cultural thing. And so if you were rich, you had the privilege of going first. And if you were poor, you had to wait for whatever was left. And usually within these love feasts, the rich would bring more food because they had more resources. The, sometimes the poor wouldn't bring any. Uh, and so, you know, you have this cultural thing that would seem to be adopted by the church. It wasn't a good cultural thing to adopt. And so these rich people are going first and they're just, you know, hey, we're just going to eat as much as we want and we don't care who's at the back of the line here. And so they're stuffing their faces and Paul says some of these people at the end, they're going hungry because they're not even getting any food because the first people uh, are being just, you know, selfish in what they eat. And that's why Paul says, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Speaking of the poor, he's rebuking the rich. You know, why are you doing this and shaming those who have nothing? You should be, you know, thinking about them and not just about yourself. So during these love feasts, the rich have their own little clique, really, dividing themselves from the poor and just eating all of the food, and the poor wasn't getting much. You know, when I was in high school, um, a group of us friends would often be together during dinner meals. And, you know, one of my friends, Jason's mom was a great cook. And so we would kind of, you know, hope that he would invite us over to his mom's house and make lots of hints and sometimes just say, hey, can we come over? And so he would invite us, but his mother would not know that we were getting invited. So we were unexpected guests, you know, and we'd show up and you got all these teen boys super hungry and, you know, mom, 
not ours, but she didn't make enough food for us to be there because we eat so much. Uh, and, and, you know, I remember the first time we came, you know, his dad just says a prayer and he says to the family, H, uh, uh, FHB. And he just says that to him. And, you know, that was like the secret code. And so all of us are wondering what that is, but that's fine. So they, they pass us all the food and, you know, we fill our plates and, you know, and afterwards we come to Jason. It's like, you know, what is FHB? And he says, Oh, that's my dad's secret code. Family hold back. Uh, we're like, what? And he's like, well, when we have guests like you, we have to hold back so you guys can get food so that we don't eat it all. You know, but this would have been a great policy for these rich people to have coming into these love feasts of hold back. Don't eat it all yourself now. Wait for everybody else to get some. And if there's extra at the end, then get seconds. But, you know, to hold back, thinking about more than just you and your own belly. But we're not only told that they were selfish in what they ate, but also in what they drank. Because Paul says, and some of you come to this drunk. You've drunk in so much wine that you actually intoxicated yourself. And so they're just really kind of indulging themselves uh, in this and being very insensitive to others who didn't have much. And that's why Paul says in verse 22, Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? So in Paul's message, it's both strong and it's also plain that, you know, if you're worried about how much you're going to get to eat and you think, you know, I'm going to leave hungry, eat at home. Eat a little bit at home so that's not going to be an issue for you. If you think, I'm not going to get enough wine tonight, have a glass before you come. You know, the whole mindset is, you know, you're here to share with one another. You're here to partake of fellowship and remembrance of Jesus. And if you really feel like, you know, I'm just going to be hungry all night, well, then you can eat a sandwich before you come and not worry about it. It's given a practical reality because you're totally missing the point and being super selfish in this time where you should be loving and considerate of others. And so we see this selfishness and this insensitivity that was happening there with the Corinthian church. And once again, this is a warning to us as a fellowship. We noted that Satan loves to cause division, but you know what? In our own sinful nature, we're selfish. We're insensitive. We we want me and what's best for me and, and, and thinking about me. And so often we're not really concerned about others like we should be. And so, you know, we can cause problems that bring divisions through our own selfishness, through only being concerned about us, whether it's in something simple like, you know, eating a meal and not being concerned about anyone else or, or other things that are more significant. But, you know, we, we need to be very cautious about this. And, Philippians chapter 2, there's a great challenge for us uh, in this area. In verses 3 and 4, it says, Let nothing, nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. What a challenge. Let nothing that we do, and I don't know if any of us could say that nothing that we do has any selfish ambition, any conceit, because, you know, we struggle with this, but this is the challenge as believers in Jesus is that we would not do things through selfishness and even more that we would look out for the interest of others, not just our own. You know, we're great at looking out for our own interests, but the challenge being, you know what, don't be so self-focused that you miss the reality that other people have interests, other people have needs that we can be sensitive to and meet, like when you come together to eat, making sure there's food for everyone. You know, imagine how wonderful and amazing our time together as believers would be if 
We did this in Philippians 2. If everybody was doing this, everyone was focused on not their own interests, not their own needs, but just loving others and thinking of others. I mean, the body of Christ would be very different place, a much more enjoyable place, and it would function the way ultimately God wants it to and be a much greater light to the culture that this does not exist in. So the first improper thing that was causing problems when believers got together, they have divisions, they have factions. The second thing is they have selfishness and insensitivity. But those four different issues really brought two, these two problems brought a bigger problem with how they were taking communion. And so now we're going to see the improper way they were taking communion in verses 27 through 30. And so we're going to skip over 23 through 26 because that speaks about how you should properly do it. We'll come back to that in a moment. But I want to finish with this third point of another way in which they were improperly um, coming together as a group of Christians. So verse 27 says this, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep." So as I mentioned earlier, as these love feasts would happen, they would conclude with a time usually to remember Christ, to remember that through partaking of communion, the bread and the wine. Now, this was a time meant to bring people close together, but they had a lot of divisions. They had factions. They had selfishness. They had insensitivity. All of that was leading up to this time where now they're going to remember Jesus' sacrifice. Now they're going to remember how much love he demonstrated to them. And Paul's bringing out the the, the hypocrisy of the way in which they were approaching this and just the sin that it um, had with it. And that's why he says in verse 27, therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks of this cup of the Lord, speaking of communion, in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So the third improper thing that was causing problems when the Corinthian believers got together was that they were partaking of communion in an unworthy manner. Now, some people have misunderstood what Paul is saying here and have concluded that we need to make ourselves worthy of taking communion. But that is not what Paul is saying at all. He's not saying we need to make ourselves worthy. He's saying that we need to take communion in a worthy way. And those are two very different things. Something important for us to understand is that none of us are worthy of what Jesus did on the cross. None of us deserve his sacrifice. None of us will ever be, no matter what we do for God, worthy of what Jesus has done for us. And so if you want to think, we got to make ourselves worthy of partaking and remembering what Jesus has done for us, well, guess what? None of us ever will be. And that's not what Paul is saying. He's not, oh, you need to get yourself worthy to partake. He's saying, no, there is a proper way to partake of communion, a worthy way to partake of communion, and there's an improper way, an unworthy way to partake of communion. And so he's saying, as you go to partake, do it in the worthy, in the proper way. Let me share some examples of you of some unworthy, some improper ways that we can approach communion, that we can take communion. First, when you come to communion in a careless and irreverent way. And this is something that many of the Corinthians were doing. Some were coming drunk. 
Some are coming with complete selfishness and disregard for anybody else. And they come to communion in this very careless, this very flippant, this very irreverent approach. And that is something that is unworthy. That is something that is improper. That is not the way in which we should come together to remember what Jesus has done because it completely goes against all that we're remembering. You know, this great sacrifice, this great love, this, you know, great unity that's brought, but yet we're super selfish and super unloving in what we're doing. And so, it just doesn't come together. Second, you can take communion in an unworthy and improper manner when you're full of bitterness and hatred towards others. You know, usually we don't take communion all on our own. You can do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But usually we're taking it together as a group of believers. And if you come to communion and within that group of believers, you got some serious bitterness and hatred towards someone. Once again, you know, if you're not willing to deal with that, it's just, you know, completely uh, hypocritical. And it's kind of a mockery of what you're celebrating. Oh, Jesus, who died for all of our sins, who completely forgives us no matter what. But I ain't forgiving this person. I'm going to stay bitter at them. I'm going to keep hating them. I mean, it just goes completely against what we're ultimately taking time to celebrate. And so when you come to communion that way, it's an unworthy way. Third, and I think this is one that we see often with us, you can take communion in an unworthy, improper manner when you're not willing to repent of your sins. You know, I mean, imagine, well, why are we taking communion? What are we remembering? We're remembering the fact that Jesus died, but, but, I mean, look at what he had to do to pay for our sins. Look at how bad our sins were, because it cost God his life. And we, we think, oh, we love you so much. We're so grateful for what you're done. But, you know, these sins in my life here, I'm not willing to get rid of them. I'm not really to, to repent of them or turn from them. I'm going to keep them. Even though you died to set me free from them, even though you gave your life so this wouldn't be something that I was bound to anymore, I don't want to be free. I want to hold on to them. I want to continue with them. And so when you come into communion and you you know are just like, I am not going to repent of things that are going on in my life, once again, that's an improper, unworthy approach to communion. And I think another one that becomes something that we struggle with is when we just, it just becomes a ritual. We do it so often, it's just a Christian ritual, something Christians do. We do it every month, or some churches we do it every week. And and it's just lost its meaning, it's lost its purpose, and we just do it. You know, drink, eat, move on. But there, there's no real, you know, it's just nothing anymore. Uh, and that is something I know in my own life as a Christian, you know, in the church I grew up in, we took communion every week. And that for me became this ritual, so here we go again, uh, but really lost its depth, its meaning, its purpose. And I came to it in a very irreverent, you know, casual way that wasn't good. And so we need to be careful not to forget and and have it lose its meaning. John MacArthur, a pastor and the president of Masters University, says this about an improper way to take communion. To trample our country's flag is not to dishonor a piece of cloth, but to dishonor the country it represents. To come unworthily to communion does not simply dishonor the ceremony, it dishonors the one in whose honor it is celebrated. We become guilty of dishonoring his uh, body and blood, which represent his total gracious life and work for us, his suffering and death on our behalf. We become guilty of mocking and treating with indifference the very person of Jesus Christ. 
Yeah, I think we need to recognize the, the reality of when we come and who we're supposed to be celebrating and remembering and focusing on, when we do it in a real un, improper, unworthy manner, you know, it's not just that, you know, we're being unworthy to juice and crackers. No, we're being unworthy to Jesus and, and making a mockery of him and what he's done. And this is something that God takes seriously. And we see it here in verses 29 and 30, how God dealt with those who were dealing, doing this in an unworthy way shows how serious God takes it. Notice what Paul says. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. So Paul says, hey, those of you who are eating and drinking, taking communion in an unworthy, improper manner, you have brought God's judgment upon you. Now, when Paul speaks of the judgment of God upon them, he's not speaking of eternal judgment. He's speaking of a corrective judgment. There's no article, the, before the judgment, speaking of the judgment, like the great white throne judgment where everyone's going to be cast into hell. He's just speaking of judgment that comes, which is a natural thing that happens as believers. We think, well, now I'm, I'm, I'm a child of God. I don't get judged anymore. Well, actually, as a child of God, now you get disciplined, just like you discipline your own children. I discipline my own children because we love them. Hebrews 12, 5, and 6 tells us that. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when we are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, the discipline that God brings in different areas is different, but here, you know, Paul brings up two specific ways that God was bringing discipline to those who were taking communion in an improper, unworthy manner. And he says, some of you are sick. You actually have sickness that is God-ordained into your life because you've approached this in this way. And then he says, some of you sleep, which is a very kind way of saying some of you are dead because of this. Whenever the Bible speaks of sleep, it's speaking of believer's death. You know, and we see this through scripture. You know, in 1 John 4, it talks about this. And, you know, we see Ananias and Sapphira were taken. And it just seems like that there's a point in time where God just says, you know what? You have ruined your testimony so much that I'm just going to take you home with me. You know, you're no longer going to be here. And there's a consequence that comes with that. But, you know, so with these, Paul's bringing up, hey, God takes this seriously. You know, when you approach this this way, it's something that he sees as significant enough to bring this kind of judgment to you. But notice what Paul says in verse 31 and 32. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. And so here's the challenge. You know, if you judge yourself, so that when you come to communion, you're partaking it worthily, you're partaking it properly, guess what? Then you can escape God's judgment for this because you're going to do it right. But when you don't judge yourself and you just come there flippantly and do it sinfully and totally unworthily, well, then you've opened yourself up to the judgment of God because of the way in which you've approached it. But Paul makes very clear that the judgment of God that he brings is different than the judgment he's going to bring upon the world. That's why he says, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So this is not a, a judgment leading to hell. This is a corrective judgment that God brings upon our life because he loves us. 
Now, with this warning, Paul's not trying to make us super fearful. Like, I'm never taking communion again. I don't want to be sick. I don't want to die. I don't want any of this judgment. The purpose is not to make us fearful of it. The purpose is to make us come to it rightly, to make us come to it properly. He's saying here, because God does take this seriously, so should you. Because God will judge you if you don't do it right, then come to it in the right way. That, that's the, the goal. It's not to make us shudder in it, but to say, hey, you know what? I'm not just going to be irreverent in this or just be flippant in this or just think of this as another ritual. I'm going to come to it in the way that I should because God takes this very seriously and so should I. And so here we have these three improper things that were causing problems when the Corinthian believers were getting together. There's divisions and factions, there's selfishness and insensitivity, and ultimately all of that brought them to a place where they are partaking of communion in an unworthy manner. And so now that we've seen the wrong way, the way that we should not approach this, now Paul is going to share with us the right way, the proper way to come to communion, to partake of communion. Now, when it comes to crossing the road, parents often say to their kids, look both ways before crossing the road. Why? Because we want to protect them from the danger, mainly the danger of cars. You don't want them to get hit by the car. And so we say, hey, look both ways before doing this. Well, what Paul's going to say to us as we come to take communion, he's going to say, look three ways so that you can escape the dangers of improperly taking communion. Those three ways are going to be look back, look forward, and look within. And we're going to see what he means by all of those, but he shares this with us so that we can properly do this. And the first one we're going to see is looking back in verses 23 through 25, and he tells us this. For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You know, one of the main points of communion is to remember what Jesus has done. And that's why he says, do this in remembrance of me. And then again, do this in remembrance of me. And so the first thing we need to do as we come to take communion is to look back and remember what Christ has done for us. Look back and remember what Christ has done for us. And this could be difficult for us because, you know, we often want to forget the suffering of a loved one. We don't want to dwell upon that. We want to dwell upon the good times. We don't want to think about the difficult times and how they suffered. You know, I think of my grandma and the, the last years of her life and cancer and, and all the difficulty that she had. My parents wouldn't even let us go to the hospital in the last few days because uh, they didn't want that memory in our mind and the way in which she looked and how bad she was doing to be with us for the rest of our lives because, you know, we don't like to remember the suffering we like to remember you know when people were having great times but Jesus says I want you to take time to remember what I went through I want you to remember my suffering I want you to think about it why because everything we believe comes back to it he suffered for us it's a demonstration of his love he suffered for our sin he took all this upon himself for us and so he says you need to remember this you need to look back to this and understand it. But you know what? I think it's interesting 
and understanding the context of this word, because as Jesus is, is sharing this with his disciples, saying these things, you know, they had never taken communion before. It hadn't existed yet. And actually, when they were together, they weren't together. And Jesus didn't say, hey, we're going to go to the upper room and we're going to do something tonight called communion. It's going to blow your mind. It's going to be great. They came together to take the Passover meal. That's what they were expecting to do. That's what they were familiar with. That's what they had been doing ever since the exodus from Egypt. And so they came to take the Passover meal. And as they are partaking this Passover meal, which, you know, helped them remember God's deliverance from Egypt. And there were all sorts of specific things within this. If you can do this today, there are Jews who do this today, Christians who do this today. And each thing symbolizes something that God did in the deliverance of Egypt, of Israel from Egypt. Now, the bread and the drinking of wine were very important parts of the Passover celebration, but it's very interesting that Jesus now takes the bread and he takes the wine, which are symbolic of something different in the Passover, and he now says, you know what, these now are going to speak of something that I'm about to do for you. The Passover meal featured unleavened bread. It was made without yeast because one, yeast is a picture of sin, but also it takes time for bread to rise and the leaven helps it rise, but they didn't have any time. Jesus says, you got to get out of Egypt right away. And so they have this unleavened bread, but also when they baked it, it was baked with these scorch marks and holes. And it really, you know, reminded them of the whipping and the beating because their time in Egypt as slaves was miserable. And so as they partook of this, you know, it was something to remind them of what they were delivered out of. And it was a good symbol for that. But then Jesus takes this symbol of unleavened bread and says, now we're changing the symbol. No longer do I want you to focus on what God's done, you know, out of Egypt. I have a whole new thing I want you to focus on. This is now my body. And what a great symbol it is for Jesus' body, because as I just mentioned, leaven in scripture is a representation of sin. This is unleavened bread, the the only sinless one, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. And you see these scorch marks in these holes. Why? Because he was whipped and he was pierced uh, and he was nailed to a cross for you and for me. And so this is a great representation and symbol for what Jesus went through for us. And he says also, after he took the cup, now, the, the cup, there were several cups of wine in the Passover meal. Each had a different title. Uh, most commentators believe the one that Jesus is referring to is the cup of redemption, speaking of how God redeemed Israel out of Israel. Uh, but now he's saying, you know what, this cup is now speaking of me. We're not just going to look at the redemption that God did just for Israel out of Egypt. I am going to redeem everyone from their sin because I am going to give my life on the cross for it. And so Jesus adds to this reminder of redemption with there's a new covenant. The old covenant, every single, you know, person had to have animal sacrifices that temporarily covered their sin. And Jesus says, well, now there's going to be a new covenant and my sacrifice is not going to be a temporary covering. It's going to be a covering for all eternity. And it's going to be a one-time deal where I'm going to give my life and my blood's going to be shed so that each person who comes and believes in me can be forgiven of their sin. And the reason these things were helpful is because there were symbols that pointed back to something that God did. So a symbol of what God did in Egypt. And now Jesus says, now they're going to be a symbol of what I'm about to do for you and giving you my life and shedding my blood. And so they're only 
symbols. This was not Jesus' actual body, actual blood. He was actually physically present with them, you know, sharing symbols with them. Um, and I bring that up because there are those who hold to the idea of transubstantiation, which teaches that the bread and the wine actually become the real, actual body and blood uh, of Jesus. And, and this is not what Jesus was communicating to his disciples. He's not saying, this is my actual body, my actual blood. And actually, even within the context, they understood they were just symbols. Because he's taking symbols, symbols of the Passover, which they didn't think that these were real things, that, hey, we have real bodies of when we suffered and real things of that. These were symbols pointing back to the time of Egypt, and now he's just taking those symbols and pointing them to himself. And so they wouldn't have concluded, this is your real body and your real blood. It was symbolic to help us remember what he has done for us. And so first we need to look back. Look back and remember the amazing sacrifice that Jesus has done for us. The second thing we should do in communion is seen in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The second thing we should do as we come to partake of communion is look forward, proclaiming the message of what Jesus has done for us. You know, when we take communion, we're not only remembering, we're not only looking back and remembering what Jesus did, we're also looking forward, proclaiming what he's done. We're proclaiming a message. This Greek word translated proclaim means to preach, proclaim publicly, to announce, to declare. It's most often translated in the Bible to preach. That's the reality. We're kind of preaching a message as we take communion, pointing to what Jesus has done, because Jesus' death isn't the end of the story. He rose from the dead. He promises us an eternity with him in heaven. He promises to come back and receive us to himself. And so, you know, these are things that we're proclaiming to those who are there as we partake this. So we look back, we look forward, looking towards the crown, looking towards the return of Jesus. And that's only possible because of his death and resurrection for our sins. The third thing we should be doing is in verse 28. It says this, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So first we look back in remembrance. Second, we look forward proclaiming the death of Christ. And the third thing we need to do is look within and examine yourself. The Greek word here translated examine means to test, to prove, to scrutinize, to examine. This is such an important part and, and something I know in my own Christian life that I neglected way too often of before partaking of communion to really look inwardly, to really think about it and examine my own life. And, you know, am I ready and am I ready to approach this in a worthy, proper way? Am I ready to approach this in a reverent way? But more important than that. Are there sins in my life right now that I haven't confessed to the Lord? Are there issues that I'm dealing with that I haven't repented of? And so the purpose of this examination is to really just be real with yourself and then turn around and be real with God. He already knows you're doing it, but to confess it, to say, you know, before I remember your sacrifice for my sin, I want to come before you and repent of these things and be real about this and come to you with a clean slate because 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. And so we trust that he's faithful and we bring that to him and then come and partake of communion. So first, we look back, we remember what Jesus has done. Second, we look forward, proclaiming the message of what Jesus has done. And third, we will look within, examining ourselves. 
Well, Paul ends this section with just a couple of practical things for the three issues that we looked at that the believers there in Corinth were dealing with, things they were doing improperly. He says this in verses 33 and 34. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. The first practical thing that Paul says to these Corinthian believers is when you come together, wait for one another. Waiting for one another isn't just good manners. It's a way in which you show love towards others. If you wait for someone else, then you know, you're you going to make sure they get an opportunity to eat. They get to be a part of this and partake of these things. And no one's going to go away hungry and missing out. Uh, the second practical thing Paul tells the Corinthian believers is if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. He mentioned this earlier as well. Hey, if you're hungry, then eat a little before you come. Don't come starving so you're going to stuff your face so that no one else gets to eat. Eat something at home so that you can eat a normal portion and everybody else can get food as well. And these are just practical things that he's throwing out there so that they can stop doing this insensitive, unloving, divisive stuff that ultimately is bringing judgment upon them. And Paul concludes with, and the rest I will set in order when I come. So Paul says, you know what, I know I'm not dealing with every possible issue here. I'm giving you the core things that you need to understand about how you shouldn't do it, how you should do it. But the other issues, when I get there, you know, we'll discuss those in person. So in this section on communion, Paul reveals three improper things they were doing that caused problems. There was the divisions, the factions, the selfishness, the insensitivity that caused them to partake in an unworthy manner of communion. And then the three proper things that brought God's blessing is to look back Remember what Christ has done, look forward, proclaiming what Christ has done, and then look within and examine yourself. And so can I have the worship team come on up? You know, we're going to finish this morning putting these three things into practice. We're going to partake of communion together. Uh, this is an open communion, meaning for anyone who has accepted Jesus as their Savior, who has asked for his forgiveness, then we invite you to partake of this with us. But I really want us to put into practice what we've looked at, you know, here. And, and the first thing I want to challenge you is, as the, the elements are passed out, is to really take the third part and have that self-examination. Look within, and if there is unconfessed sin in your life, there's things that you haven't dealt with, you haven't repented of, I really strongly encourage you deal with that right now as as the worship team plays a song as the elements are passed out that you come before the lord and you ask for his forgiveness you ask for his cleansing and he will do that uh and then once we all have that i'm going to come back up and we're just going to take a moment to look back and and just to thank the lord and to remember him uh for what he's done and so uh, i just want to encourage you right now uh just to take some time to have some self-examination of your own sin and just hold on to the elements and we'll uh, take them together